0: I was in my second year of residency, I had a young lady admitted to my service who had uh, just made a, another recent suicide attempt. And as I was taking her history, and she described a long life of despair, depression, recurrent suicide attempts. As I took her history, she told me that as, as a child that she was molested on, a, on a multiple occasions by her parish priest. And, and after the, the molestations, the parish priest would tell her of her wickedness and her sinfulness for tempting him in the way she did, and how that she was going to burn in hell for her sins. She had not only did she have the psychiatric difficulties that you would anticipate of someone who survived childhood trauma, but she had many questions about God and God's role in her life, given the fact that she was taught by her parents that the priest represents God on earth. When I presented her case to my faculty, my faculty felt that it was appropriate for me to deal with her psychiatric problems, depression and trauma issues, but the questions about God they felt were outside of the realm of psychiatry, and so they wanted me to refer her to a chaplain, which I did. And after several weeks meeting with the chaplain, I asked her how it was going, and she says, it's going very strange. He he told me I shouldn't pray. He told me I, I shouldn't read my Bible. He told me that I should make a list of all the bad things that have ever happened to me. And then after I've got this list complete, I should should imagine a beam of light coming through the window and burning up this list. And I should tear the list up and throw it in the trash. And I said, well, did you do it? And she said, yes. And I said, how are you? She said, no different. And so I decided at that point in my residency that my patients who were struggling with spiritual issues and questions about God had real issues and they needed real answers that would work. And so I began studying the Bible in addition to the materials that I was given to read by my professors. And I, I literally spent two hours in Scripture and studying God's Word, seeking for His understanding of the mind and principles that bring healing. For every one hour, I spent studying the modern psychiatrists and philosophers. And it eventually led to... The first book, Could It Be the Simple, which this talk will be taken out of. And that book came out in 2007, and it is available here for you guys today at uh, no cost. And it has been translated into uh, nine languages now, or I guess eight languages plus English. And then Rich and Susan Collenberg took the material and created a prison ministries workbook, which is also available for you here today. Could it be the simple, the way out of uh, your prison workbook? And it's been very helpful for many people who have found themselves incarcerated. And you may know that in that population, there's a high concentration of people who have suffered childhood traumas. And so these resources are available. And this first talk is out of that book. So What I'm looking to help you understand today is my understanding of God's design for our mind. How did he originally design our mind to function? What happened that sin has damaged our mind? And then what principles can we bring to bear in our lives today that help cooperate with God for the healing and restoration of of our mind? And so the highest faculties in our mind are those faculties which create us in God's image, which separate us from the animals. And I collectively term them our spiritual nature. And when I use the phrase spiritual nature, I'm not referring to some ethereal, mystical vapor that floats around. I'm talking about those actual abilities or qualities that God built us with that make us in his image. And the highest of these faculties is our ability to reason, to weigh evidences, to draw conclusions. This is killer, and killer has a problem. You see, we can talk to killer, and we can educate killer about germ theory, about sanitation, and it really doesn't matter how much we educate killer, he doesn't seem to understand or, or process these things. God uh, has given us the ability to reason, to weigh evidence, is to comprehend, to grow in our understanding of reality. Animals don't have the same level of, of capacity. And in Isaiah, God actually says, come let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. they are red like crimson, they'll be made like wool. Have you ever noticed that God connects reasoning with him with cleansing from sin? You should be very suspect of any religious movements or systems that would want you to believe or have faith without reasoning. You should be very suspect of that. God wants us to reason. Paul says in the New Testament in Romans that every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. How can you be persuaded in your own mind if you don't reason and evaluate the evidences and come to some conclusions? So the only way for you to be persuaded is for you to reason and to think. The place in our brain where this ability processes is the part of the brain behind our forehead called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. It's right here in the very front. But God knows that we are finite beings. We, we live in a universe with an infinite God. There's information always beyond our awareness, and so he understands that as finite beings, reasoning alone is not sufficient for healthy discernment and discrimination. And so he's given us another faculty, always to work jointly with our reasoning ability, and that is our conscience, our conscience. Now, what is the conscience? Well, Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Understand, he is not primarily speaking of the physical eye here. He is speaking of that mental faculty through which you become enlightened, an enlightened individual where you're connected to the light that lightens all men. He's speaking of that faculty which is sensitive to the movements of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, which is your conscience. Paul talks about those who are resistant or op- opposed to God's methods and principles and spirit as searing their consciences with a hot iron. Examples of the conscience is recorded in the Scripture. Remember the story of Elijah with the still small voice, that God wasn't in the wind, he wasn't in the fire, he wasn't in the earthquake, He he was in that sound that was so quiet, it was not even a whisper. How many of you have had in your own personal journey with God, as you've talked with him in prayer, had that experience of hearing his voice, but not through your ears? That's your conscience, the Holy Spirit moving upon your mind. How many of you have had the Holy Spirit bring conviction And not simply the conviction of wrongdoing. We're all familiar with the conviction of sin. How about the conviction of a duty? You had a conviction put on your heart. I need to go here. I need to speak to that person. I need to share this book. I need to give to this situation. Have you had that conviction put on your heart? That's the Holy Spirit working on your conscience. Now, what happens if we have a human mind working with reasoning? Reasoning ability is on but they have no conscience. What would be the problem with the human mind like that? These are your sociopaths. These are your your criminals, the people that exploit, that will take advantage, they have no moral compass, they can strategize, they can plan. What would be the problem if we had somebody who's very conscientious, extremely conscientious, but they don't use reason, they turn reason off, whether it's been damaged, whether they've been told by their faith group that, well, when you have faith, you just, you just uh, uh, have belief, you don't think, you don't reason. Either way, what would be the problem with people like this? Well, these are people who will fly planes into buildings. They will burn to death at a, at a compound in Waco. They will put bombs on themselves in the name of their God and go out and blow themselves up in public. These people are conscientious, they're willing to sacrifice their lives for their beliefs. Are they reasonable? They're not reasonable people. You can't reason with people like this. If you've ever tried, they are not reasonable. Let me tell you the true story of Carlos. Carlos was, a, uh, Carlos and his wife belonged to a religious group that did many healthy things. They exercised regularly, they ate healthy, they believed in God. But one of the things that they also believed in was that medications were sinful. Sinful to take medications. And in fact, the most sinful medications you can already guess are gonna be psychiatric medications. Those would be the worst. Well, sadly, he was a retired history professor. After his retirement, he developed a light life depression. First time in his life, depression. And it wasn't just a regular depression, he developed what we call a psychotic depression. He had a break with reality. He began to hallucinate. He began to hear voices. He became confused and disorganized in his thinking. He and his wife recognized something is wrong. What do we do? If we believe that medications are sinful. So they hunted for a sanitarium that believed similar to, the, to, to their beliefs. They took him there, and the doctors began to treat him with hydrotherapy, water treatments, and, and massage therapy, and prayer, and various herbs and natural remedies, and, and he continued to get worse. He lost weight, stopped eating, got down to 85 pounds at about 5 foot 10. And at that point, the doctors put a tube right through the abdominal wall into his stomach called a G-tube where they could give him liquid nutrition, and that stabilized his physical body. But he continued to get more psychotic, and soon he was crawling around on the floor, smearing feces on the wall. After eight months of this treatment, they brought him to see me. I assessed him. I diagnosed him. This is depression with psychosis, and I explained to him and his wife how much research has been done on this through time, and no natural remedies resolve this, that we have to do some physical intervention that's designed to restore the brain to normal function. And I explained that that the state of psychosis is highly toxic to the brain, and and the longer you're in psychosis, you're actually damaging uh, neurons and brain cells. But at the end of the day, he and his wife both said that it would be better for him to die than to take medication. Conscientious people, but not reasonable people. They took him back to the sanitarium, four more months of this treatment. Finally, the son who lived outside the country heard what was going on, flew in, took dad away from mom, took him to a psychiatrist in Chicago, maybe he had friends or family there, but that psychiatrist put him on medication, antidepressant, and a psychotic. and the psychosis cleared in about two weeks, and three months later, he was teaching part-time. One year of his life lost because of conscientiousness without reason. The part of the brain where we have our conscience is frontal, frontal high, reason. Frontal above the orbit of the eye, that's where you have your conscience. And these uh, two faculties together jointly make up your judgment. So if I say, in your judgment, what do you think we ought to do? I'm asking you to engage your reason to evaluate evidences, facts, and I'm asking you to engage your conscience to stay in touch with God and ask for his direction and insight and conviction of your duty and responsibilities. The next faculty of our spiritual nature is a God-designed desire to worship. To worship. Everyone worships something. Even those people who do not believe in God and say they're atheists or agnostics, they worship. Worship is a looking outside of yourself for a frame of orientation that guides and directs your life. Uh, Carl Jasper said, that which you hold to upon which you stake your existence, that is truly your God. Richard Creel said, a person's deity is that which actually dominates the person's life, giving it unity, direction, and inspiration. Whether the person realizes it or not, some people worship money. Some people worship science. Some people worship power. Some people, I will tell you right now today, we're having a resurgence of an ancient pagan worship system called worshiping of nature, worshiping the earth. There's a lot of nature worship going on in society today. And you are not allowed to question it. You must comply or you'll be punished. And we're going to pass laws to make sure that you obey the the mandates of our new goddess of nature. And, of course, we become the god that saves our goddess in this new worship form. The question is not whether we worship. Everyone worships something. Rather, the question is, what are we worshiping? That's the real question. Now, why does God say, thou shalt have no other gods before me? I've asked this question around the world to audiences, and uh, you will often get answers. Well, because it's the commandment. It's the law. Well, because he's creator. He's sovereign. It's his right. Because he died for us and loves us so much. Now, everything I just said is true. It isn't the commandment. It is the law. God is sovereign. He is creator. He did die for us. He does. All these are factually things that are true. But none of them are the reasons why he says, Thou shalt have no other God before me. That's not the way he says it. Why he says it is because of the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. In psychiatry and psychology, it's called modeling. We actually are changed neurobiologically, characterologically, based upon what we admire, esteem, watch, read, assimilate. We are being transformed in that process. And God knows that we, human beings made in his image, are the highest created beings on planet Earth. There is nothing on planet Earth that will cause us to develop and, and, and to the highest pinnacles of development that God has for us. Only in worshiping the infinite one do we constantly advance and develop in godliness. Anything on Earth that we, de- that we worship, we replace God with, degrades us, it damages us. This is a picture of Hakek. It's a frog god of ancient Egypt dealt with in the second of the ten plagues in the book of Exodus. Now imagine that you were worshipers of this little god, and you had the little idol in your home, and a little shrine, and each night before bed you gathered the children, and you bowed down, and you prayed, Dear Lord frog, bless mom and dad, and help me to grow up to be like you. So we do see problems with this, don't we? We don't have to go to ancient Egypt you can see this. This is a relief in a Hindu temple today. You can visit there. And can you tell in the relief what they're worshiping? This is a picture inside the temple. They worship the rat. And in this temple, this is a bowl of milk and honey. And worshipers will come in, kneel down, and drink out of that with the rats. It's considered a great blessing to be bitten by a rat. Uh, here are young men praying to the rat. Now, these young men believe in reincarnation. Here we have young men created in the image of God with their own unique individuality, identity, capacity for reason and thinking and decision-making, but they have as their highest goal to die and become a rat. Do we see a problem when we replace God with anything that is not God? It's damaging and degrading to us. It's healthy worship that ennobles our reasoning and cleanses our conscience. Unhealthy worship damages our reasoning, sears the conscience, warps the character, and understand within Christianity, not all worship is equally healthy. There's lots of worship in Christianity that damages people. Uh, If you can't see it today, just look at the dark ages, and when they burned people at the stake for not believing their way. Lots of things done in Christianity that damage. Our goal is to remove the trappings that humans have put and see God as Jesus revealed him to be. The ever more clear picture of God we get, the more transformationally healing it is to us as we behold him and become like him. I put the whole brain up here because worship we do with our whole being. The next faculty of the mind, after your good judgment is evaluated facts, situations, circumstances, the next faculty has God designed this to go into action. And that faculty is your will. And what is your will? The will is the executor of the mind. It's the CEO. It is simply the chooser. The faculty that goes, I choose to do this. I choose to do that. That's your will. And I will tell you, everything will depend on the action of your will. What choices are you making? Choices to believe and choices to act. Choices to trust, choices to distrust. Your choices will activate different neural pathways, will affect brain development, will affect relationships, will affect your character development. It's your choices. God's design is that you choose to do what your good judgment tells you is most appropriate and healthy. But it doesn't have to work this way. Consider a smoker. A smoker can reason through all the reasons why smoking is no good. Heart disease, lung disease, cancer, waste money. Their conscience can convict them of the need to quit. They can even tell themselves and their, and their kids, oh, worst habit, wish I never started, and don't you dare start. But if they never actually choose to put the cigarettes down, they keep smoking. And what you're going to discover here as this talk unfolds is that to the degree you make choices that your own judgment tells you are not healthy for you, you damage yourself, it's unavoidable. And health and wellness and peace within comes when you make choices that are consistent with your own good judgment about what's healthy for you. Have you heard that old statement, to thine own self be true? It means not betraying yourself to act and choose in harmony with what you know is healthy, right, and reasonable in harmony with God's will and purposes. The part of the brain where your will operates is the interior singular cortex. That's where you make choices. That's active when you're choosing. The next faculty of our mind is our thoughts, and it does include all the various mundane things we think, like, oh, I don't want to be late for that meeting today. I've got to get up an hour early. Or, but specific types of thoughts are beliefs, our values, morals, and imagination. These are specific types of thoughts. Our imagination is the ability to fantasize, to creatively think, to use guided imagery, to daydream. This is a wonderful ability. It allows you to process and problem solve and in your imagination test various possibilities and work your way through potential outcomes based on your current understanding of reality without having to necessarily go through it. It can be a very helpful tool for mature thinking. Use your imagination, create, and then maybe try the one that you think is most reasonable. Unfortunately, many people that come to see me have dysfunctional imaginations. They have imaginations that run unregulated unregulated from their good judgment. Their imaginations take off free and clear, guided by the most powerful emotion they're feeling at that moment. And so they imagine all types of fear-inducing circumstances. Imagine, imagine future circumstances where, where they're uh, abandoned, where they're lonely, where they're, where they're financial ruined, where they, where they didn't get this job, or they didn't have that relationship work out. So they imagine things that are not actually real right now, And that imaginationary uh, circumstance in their mind creates all types of fear and stress and worry and they begin looping on that type of thing because their imagination runs ungoverned. One of my professors told me when I was in residency, if you find yourself in a hole, quit digging. (laughs) If you just stop, cease, desist, don't do anything, just be still. The hole doesn't get deeper. You're still in the hole, but it's not getting deeper. And the first step in learning to get out of this, uh, this imaginary hole is simply to stop and, re, and re- govern your imagination. Wait, stop, that's imagination. That's not actually my reality today. Stop. Learning how to govern the imagination is a critical piece of learning how to find mental health and well-being. And The next faculty of our mind, after... Uh, Which always part of our human experience, always part of what God designed for us, but never to be in charge, never to lead, is our feelings, our emotions. And they do include the various gamut of emotions we all have, but two special ones I want to focus on here, and that is a God-given desire for relationships and our affections. God in Eden, prior to sin, looked in and said about Adam, it's not good that he is alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In a sinless world, what does this mean? It's been grossly misunderstood in our fallen state, and unfortunately men have looked at that and said, ah, see, uh, God knew we needed somebody to cook and do our laundry, and this is not what this was about. A helper suitable for him. Mankind is made in the image of God. And God's chief central core identifying attribute is God is love. Love cannot function in a singularity. Adam could not grow in love, to be godlike in love, without someone for Adam to serve without someone for Adam to sacrifice himself for. Eve was created to be the recipient of Adam's God-like, other-centered love that he would pour into her. And then she would receive that love, and it would flow back to Adam again in service for him, in unity with their heavenly father, a triune perfection of love. God's image in man. This was God's design. So, we have this God-given desire for relationships. We want to love and to be loved. Some will say, well, you just said that our spiritual nature are those faculties that make us in God's image, and you just told us that that love is God's central attribute. Then why is this desire for relationships under our feelings and not under our spiritual nature? How many of y'all have pets? Anybody have a pet? Can your pets love you? Yes or no? Can they be loyal to you? Can they know you from other people? Can they sacrifice themselves for you? Yes, they can. Have you ever seen some of the stories of the heroic dogs that have, that have uh, been trained and, uh, as helper dogs or, or military dogs or fire rescue dogs and, and the self-sacrificial service and the loving loyalty that these animals give. Uh, animals have relationship. There are certain animals out there that mate for life. Animals have relationship, desire for relationship. So what Paul says here in Romans is that God's divine nature and uh, eternal power has been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. All nature reveals something about God. And animals reveal that there can be this other-centered, bonding relationship you can have with animals. So that doesn't separate us from the animals, the desire for relationship. In fact, if it wasn't for your good judgment determining where, with whom, and to what level you engage in relationship, if it wasn't for your will choosing where, with whom, and to what level you engage in relationship, if it wasn't for your higher faculties governing this desire, we become no different than the animals driven around by passions and lusts. So it does say something about God, but it is to be governed by your good judgment, where you decide where, with whom, and on what level. What about our affections? Affections are a specific type of emotion known as our heartstrings or feelings of attachment. Let me see if I can bring this home so you can kind of feel, get a sense of what I'm talking about. I want you to imagine you've been saving money for years to buy your dream car. And you finally have enough and you buy your car. You're so excited. You've driven off the lot. You wanna show your friends. You go to where they're working. You run in to get them. You come out and there just happens to be another car just like yours in the parking lot, but that other one, not yours, has a big dent in the side. You might go, ah, don't worry about that, let me show you my wheels. But if you come out and your new car has a big dent in the side, does it feel different? (laughs) See, you already have an emotional attachment to this object, okay? That is an affection, that is a heartstring, And so when the Bible says, above all else, guard your heart, It's telling you, be careful what you allow your heart to become attached to. When the Bible talks about circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, it's talking about cutting away our attachments to earthly things, and I will tell you, people. And establishing our attachments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to God first, to heavenly things, and then only bond and connect with people who are operating in harmony with the kingdom of God. Cut our attachments away. I will tell you what's happening in the world today, folks. What's happening in the world today, it's investing people to attach themselves to the values and desires of materialism in the world, and not attaching their hearts to the kingdom of God. So, as God designed our mind... Face-to-face relationship in Eden, where God is the source of infinite truth, infinite love, shining into their hearts as they grow and worship him. They grow ever more uh, God-like in their understandings and abilities and perfect uh, thinking and healthy beliefs, values, right use of imagination, healthy relationships and attachments. This was God's design. But something went wrong. What happened when Adam sinned? Well, I want you to imagine you're in a loving, other-centered marriage relationship where you love and trust your spouse, and your spouse loves and trusts you. And somebody you also love and trust, maybe one of your siblings, maybe a friend you've known since first grade, maybe a, a counselor you've counseled with, somebody you also love and trust comes to you with tears in their eyes, sadness on their face, and they tell you they have sad news to tell you that they've discovered your spouse is having an affair but they're lying to you. And then they pull out their computer and they show pictures that they've doctored that make it appear as if your spouse was with somebody else, but it's not true, your spouse is still faithful and loyal. Now, if you believe the lie, even though your spouse is still faithful, if you believe the lie, does something inside of you change? Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. And as soon as the lies are believed, I call it the falling dominoes of destruction because after you kick over the first domino, the rest can't, you can't stop the rest from happening. But I'll walk you through the cascade. Lies believe, break the circle of love and trust and once love and trust is broken, the heart is filled with fear and selfishness. I'm afraid of you. I don't trust you anymore. I believe you aren't interested in me. I believe you're going to hurt me. Uh, I'm not letting you come in my bedroom tonight. You might bring me a disease. I better get to the bank and get that money before you do. Got to watch out for self because you don't have my back anymore. This drive driven by fear to watch out for self is known as survival of the fittest. Paul refers to it as the law of sin and death. Lies believe, break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. Fear and selfishness result in destructive actions or deeds or behaviors. We call these sins. Notice, we are three steps down before we get to a deed. Many people want to think that sin is the deed. It is not. Jesus said, you say if you commit adultery, bad deed you commit sin. I say if you lust in your heart. You say if you commit murder, bad deed you commit sin. I say if you hate in your heart. Jesus is letting us know that the deeds are the manifestations of a heart that's not operating in love, but it's operating in fear and selfishness. That's the problem. And these destructive actions operating on fear and selfishness are damaging to our mind, our characters, our bodies, and our relationships. This is a terminal condition. Thus, we're born dead in trespass and sin. We're not born guilty. We're born terminal. Imagine HIV-infected man, HIV-infected woman, get together and have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? Nothing. Does the baby have guilt? No, they're innocent. But do they still have a condition, which if unremedied will result in their death? That's every human being since Adam and Eve were born in sin, conceived in iniquity, born with a condition we did not choose that will result in death unless we participate with the remedy God provides freely to us. So our mind, God is still the source of infinite truth, infinite love shining down upon us, but our minds are now infected with fear, with selfishness, with lies, with distortions, with all types of things about God that that cause us maybe to believe in him but not trust him, and so we need to be protected from him. And you know all the theologies that corrupt. So as I quoted a moment ago, Psalm 51:5, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, this is our inheritance from Adam, a condition that needs cleansing. And the Bible tells us this sin condition, this fear drive, this me first drive has three primary ways it manifests in our life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We would simply call that sensualism, materialism, and egotism. And you will see that in the world, people have different constellations of their sin vulnerabilities. There are people that have serious addiction problems. There are other people that have a a substance addiction, a a, a porn addiction, a a gluttony addiction, the physical, there are certain people that's never been attempted, they don't get it. They don't understand the struggles of the people who struggle with addiction because it's never been a temptation for them. But they may struggle with pride, with arrogance, with judgmentalism and look down on those poor, pitiful, miserable, addicted sinners. These, const- we have different constellations in our human journey of our own personal struggle but the root is the same, a condition of fear and selfishness that manifests in a variety of different ways. And so God is still the source of truth and love, trying to shine into our minds. But our minds are infected with this condition. And so the difference between a converted and an unconverted mind, notice what Paul says in Romans 8:5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. So the unconverted mind, God is still a source of love and truth, but they use their power of choice to set their mind, their energy, their reasoning power, their abilities to gratify the carnal nature, to get for self. They justify, they externalize, it's never their fault. They deny, they distort, they blame. It's their right. You have no right to tell them that they can't get for more for self. And so, the ways of the world are foolishness. You see, the ways of, of God's ways are foolishness to those who practice the ways of the world. makes no sense to them. How can you get more if you sacrifice self? How can you, the more you give, actually receive more? That doesn't work. The more I get, I have to hoard, I have to take, I have to exploit. That's how I get more. Not giving, giving, that doesn't make sense. See, the, the systems of fear and selfishness drive to be a taker, a hoarder, an exploiter, a dominator, a controller, an abuser, a rioter, to get more for self. It's not the system of giving. It doesn't make sense. But the converted mind, the converted mind has been reborn, has new principles, new motives. Yes, because we're still on this earth, we still are subject to temptation. We have feelings of fear. We have feelings of doubt. We have feelings of insecurity. We have feelings of lust or passions of various kinds. But those feelings are rejected at the will. We say, not as I will, Lord, but as you will. And so... We are not contaminated, we are tempted. Temptation is not sin. And the mind does not get contaminated until the will chooses it. If you choose it in your heart, yes, yes, I want that, then you're corrupted by it. But simply being tempted, the converted person rejects the temptation. I will tell you, neurobiologically, as you apply the principles of God, if you reject the temptations, then over the course of time, neural circuits that lead to those temptations get pruned back, and the temptations lose power. Have you ever noticed that if you've gotten victory in Jesus Christ, certain things that tempted you very badly years ago are very weak, or hardly even come into your mind anymore? You're being transformed. You're being healed. Your thoughts and feelings together form your character. Your conscience and reason form an ability known as judgment or discernment or an ability to weigh evidence or draw conclusions. Your will is the power to make decisions, but it is your thoughts, your beliefs, your values, the morals, the, the, the way you read, the, the, the um, mindset that you hold along with the affections, the things you've attached to, the things you love, those two together form your character. So a simplified overview. So you don't have to remember the whole thing functionally out there on the street. How do I apply this? You simply remember judgment. You have powerful feelings. And in between, you have to make a choice. at your will. And you will find over and over again, you will find circumstances in life where your judgment will be leading you one direction. You have strong feelings pulling you another direction. And you have to make a choice. This is almost every struggle we have in life. So imagine you're a new mom, you've just had your first child, you've come home from the hospital, everybody's healthy, but you've been up early, fixing up the nursery. Before you know it, the day slipped by, you crawl into bed, completely exhausted, 11 o'clock at night. At two in the morning, baby begins to cry wet and hungry. Do you feel like getting up out of bed? No, but your good judgment kicks in, you understand your responsibilities, you literally wheel yourself up, you go feed, change the child. Isn't that how it works? Yeah, and having done that, even though you might be tired, following the dictates of your good judgment, you're peace with yourself, content. But let's turn it upside down, put feelings in charge. Two in the morning, you don't feel like getting up, so your feelings grab a hold of your thoughts, you tell yourself, look, if I'm gonna be a good mom, I've gotta have my rest, and besides that, if my husband, who didn't, whose body didn't get all morphed out of shape to bring this child in the world in the first place, gets to sleep all night, I deserve my rest, and so you pull a pillow over your head and you let your baby lay there wet and hungry all night. Now when you get up the next morning, how do you feel? Self-esteem up, self-esteem down. Self-worth up, self-worth down. See, when we put feelings in charge, I will show you over and over again, when your feelings overrule your judgment, you damage yourself. And if it's so bad, if you're really immature, you might not even be able to own, that's on me, I was just tired, I'm sorry, I'll do better tomorrow. You may be so immature you can't even own it, so it's, if you weren't crying, baby, I wouldn't be in this. It's your fault for crying last night. You think I'm making this up? This is what happens. You see, Just look around in society right now at people who are doing certain things, but it's never their fault. How about a 16-year-old cheerleader on a high school football team? She thinks the captain's really cute. She hopes he'll ask her out. And sure enough, one day he does. And on the very first date, he tries to violate her virtue. What does her good judgment say? Good idea, bad idea? Bad idea, but could she have feelings that confuse her? Feelings of anxiety and fear. I don't want him to be mad at me. I don't want him to never ask me out again, or maybe feelings of arousal and attraction. Either way, does she have a choice to make? She's gotta choose, judgment, feelings. If she goes with her good judgment, looks at that and says, no, that's not what's gonna happen here tonight, no. Is that fun or is that stressful? Stressful, but if she goes with her good judgment, next day, next month, next year, how does she feel about herself? How about if she puts feelings in charge and lets him have his way, then what happens? See, every time we allow our feelings to overrule judgment, it injures us. Now, some people have pointed out, well, wait a second, doc, <clears throat> isn't it really not the feelings overruling? It said it's immoral. It's immoral not to care for your child. It's immoral to have premarital sex. Isn't that really the problem here? First two were kind of examples to, to help bring the point home, but the third one's a true story. Pastor's wife came to see me, 28 years in the ministry with her husband, adult children, all healthy, but she was struggling with years of anxiety and depression, and she had no idea why and then she told me a story that revealed the problem. She um, was taking a college class, and as the college uh, semester was winding down, she had her final exam scheduled uh, for a Thursday morning. So immediately she went to her counter, blocked off Wednesday night of exam week for final exam preparation for her exam 8 a.m. Thursday morning. Tuesday of exam week, church organist calls and said, look, I can't make midweek worship tomorrow. Will you sub for me? Immediately, her judgment said, no, that's my final exam preparation. I I can't do it. But she told me she was overcome with feelings of fear. She said, oh, I didn't want her to be mad at me. I didn't want her to start rumors in the church that ladies couldn't count on me. I didn't want the church membership to think that I don't support my husband's ministry. So based on all of this fear and insecurity, she changed her plans and went and played the organ at church. Is there anything immoral about playing the organ at church? Not at all. But what do you think happens to her self-esteem, self-worth, self-confidence, up or down? It went down, and here's why. When you make a judgment about something, you're making an estimation, or you're estimating, okay? Same root as esteem. You can go against your judgment, but it still operates. And so if if your judgment says, no, I need to, to study, but you choose to go play the organ without changing your judgment about what's really best for you to, where you need to be at that time, your judgment makes a new judgment. And your judgment makes this judgment, you're weak, you're a coward, you're spineless, you disgust me, I can't stand you. You betrayed me again. And so your self-estimation or self-judgment falls when you don't actually choose to do what your judgment knows is right for you to do. So do we see that one of the things that affect our self-esteem, self-worth, self-confidence is the organizational balance of our mind? So problems with imagination. We can put people in a PET scanner and we can have them uh, play a piece of music on a keyboard and we can see what circuits are firing in real time. And then we can take away the the keyboard, put some little electrodes in the muscles that we can make sure they're not sending microscopic signals down to their muscles and have them imagine playing the same piece of music. And guess what we see on the PET scan? Same circuits are firing when they do it in their imagination. This is why Jesus said, you say you commit adultery, I say if you lust in your heart, If you're doing this in your imagination, see, we can take pedophiles, we can lock them in prison for years where they cannot behaviorally act out. Can we control their imagination? And if they spend 20 years in prison imagining those dastardly deeds, they come out a more recidivist pedophile than when they went in. This is why the Bible says we must bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So then problems with beliefs. Satan is the father of lies. He is the father of lies. If he gets you to believe a lie, he has power over you. As he gets us to believe lies about God and the root lie that underpins, in my view, all lies about God is the accepted lie across the landscape of the world that God runs his government the way a human government operates. He makes up rules. He uses his power to police breaches in the rules, and then he flicks punishment upon the rule breakers. His laws work like our laws, just making them up and punishing them. And that is the root to every, essentially every lie in Christianity and other religions. Rather than seeing God as creator, whose laws are the laws upon which he built reality to operate, they include the physical laws like gravity and physics and laws of health, but also the moral laws. Think about it. Why is it wrong to commit adultery? Well, God put it in stone. He made a rule, and he's monitoring. He's following you. If you commit adultery, and he can actually see into your heart. So if you do it in your mind, he's got a little demerit in heaven. And one day you're going to face judgment. And he's going to look at that judgment. He's going to look at the record book. And if you don't get the blood Jesus put in the record book, then you're going to be vipped. And then you're going to be punished. Why is it wrong? How about you commit adultery and no one here finds out? What happens to your conscience? What happens to your character? What happens, you become more fearful, you become more anxious, you you cannot avoid the damage to you. Every act of sin damages because it takes us out of harmony with the laws upon which which God built reality to operate. But these lies that God operates like a human magistrate or a human government creates distorted theologies that leads to some poking fun, like this cartoon, God's Jesus standing at the door of your heart, knocking, let me in. Why? So I can save you. From what? From what I'll do to you if you don't let me in. <laughs> but that's what you get with an imperial or imposed law construct. God is required, because we've all broken the rules, to kill us, and so if we don't let him in, then he can't save us from what he'll do to us for not letting him in. It's, it, it makes no sense, whatever. And that's why there's such corruption in the world, even in countries that, uh, that um, purport to believe in Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that in our lecture on recovering from sexual abuse. I'll give you some data on, on that. How about God will torture you in hell? Try that. We'll talk about that in our talk on love versus love addiction. But try that on somebody you love. Love me. I, I just love you so much. I only want you to love me in return but if you don't love me, I will pour gasoline on you and burn you. Now I can only burn you until your body dies, that might last three, four minutes at the most. God loves you so much more, he'll burn you for eternity. Because he really loves, he's infinitely in love, and he'll he'll burn you for an infinite time, that's how much he loves you. Don't you love him more? Doesn't it just warm your heart? (laughs) No, it's corrupt. It's a violation of one of the principles upon which God built reality to operate, which is the principle of freedom. Love cannot exist without freedom. Anybody who threatens you cannot inspire love in you. God requires appeasement. We have to do something to this God. That's the core of paganism. Paganism is imperial. They're authoritarian gods who will punish disobedience, and and we always bring sacrifices to our pagan gods to somehow influence, pay them, uh, or appease them in some way so they won't punish us, it's pagan. And much of Christianity operates in this way, other than Jesus is the intercessor or mediator to pay his father the blood. Just think that through for a moment. How much sense does it actually make to you? You know, we're in trouble with God. We're all sinners, all fallen short of the glory of God. There's nothing we can do to, 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 to put ourselves right with God. I know when he sends his son, I know what we can do. He'll, he'll really, really be positive toward us after this. We'll kill his son and offer him his son's blood, and then he'll love us more. Do you see the corruption? That's classic penal Christianity. It's based on a fraud that God's law works like human law, rather than God creator... Adam sinned, corrupted himself, were born with a condition out of harmony with God. God sent Christ to take up condition, become the second Adam, fix the brokenness, and become the remedy to restore in us, right, the law in the heart and mind, circumcision of the heart by the spirit, have the mind of Christ be recreated in the inner man, be reborn to regenerate. And thus it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Substitution. Some people will say, Jennings doesn't believe in substitution. I absolutely believe in substitution. Biblical substitution. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Substitution. So that, here's the reason, we might become the righteousness of God. To fix the sinfulness in us. To make us righteous. The the fraud that's out there in Christianity is, is he became sin for us so that he could pay the Father so the Father could legally declare us to be righteous even though we're not, we're not righteous. That's a contradiction to the Bible. Second Corinthians tells us that we become righteous, not get declared righteous. That's the truth. Lies believed, remember, break the circle of love and trust and thus we have all these theologies designed to hide us and protect us from God because we really can't trust him. So we have the theology of covered in the robe of righteousness when the Father looks at us, he can't see our wickedness because if he saw it, his wrath would be outraged because sin is offensive to him and he can't stand it and his anger boils over. If he could just get some anger management classes. (laughs) No, it's wrong, it's corrupt, it distorts God's character. For God so loved the world. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God was in the Son, reconciling the world Now the truth is that God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his Son? How will He um, not with him? Give us all things? It's always God for us. Always. All this other stuff keeps us afraid of Him, rather than reconciling us to Him. So problems with obeying the commandments with an imbalanced mind. Had a, uh, this is after sin, after repentance. After forgiveness, still struggling with unremitting guilt for some reason, not getting well. Why? Well, a young woman uh, in early in her marriage uh, had a one-night affair. She was seduced. One night slippage, immediately after the event, she's already overrun with guilt, conviction. She runs home that night, confesses to her husband, asks his forgiveness. He forgives her. They go to the pastor together. They pray for forgiveness. She asks God forgiveness. She gets rebaptized. She rededicates herself to the Lord. Seven years later, never another stray from her marriage vows. According to her, her husband, everything loyal, failed, but she's still struggling with guilt from the affair. Every time that there is an altar call, she is like a bullet down to the front, falling on her knees. She's asked the pastor to rebaptize her again and again, but he wouldn't do it because it hasn't, she hasn't strayed again. Why is the guilt not going away? Because of the organizational balance of the mind. Think about how fa- affairs happen. Affairs never happen because of someone's good judgment evaluating the blessings that will transcend from that action. That's not why they happen. Affairs happen because powerful feelings overrule a person's good judgment. That's how they all happen. Now, while she never had another affair again, she never changed this method of operating. And so she'd be at work, and a coworker might ask to borrow her car. <clears throat> and her good judgment goes, well, no, you wanna borrow my car because you've had three wrecks recently. <laughs> no, I don't wanna let you borrow my car. It doesn't, it's not a good decision. But then she's overcome with feelings, afraid of being the woman being mad at her, afraid of gossip starting, afraid of not being seen as a, as a loving Christian. So based on fear, she lets the woman borrow her car. Now, do you see, functionally, it's the same way affairs happen. Feelings, overruling judgment. That's what happened with the affair. Feelings just overruled judgment. But where is it written in Scripture? Thou shalt not let thy coworker borrow thy car. So, so what was happening in her life is all over the place as she's making decisions like this, her, she will feel a conviction. She's done something wrong. And her mind would regurgitate up the most egregious, serious example of this, which was the affair. And so she kept feeling guilt for the affair, which represented her allowing her feelings to overrule her judgment. Once I taught her this, and she started actually choosing to do what her good judgment said the guilt for the affair went away and didn't come back. So Christian principles, you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. But it says in James that no one should say that God tempts because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted and we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. Feelings lead us to temptation. And that's where you will find your judgment understands truth. And so where does truth come into our mind? Truth comes in through your spiritual nature the spirit of truth, enlightening your mind, and you have to choose, embrace, apply the truth, updating your beliefs, your values, uh, circumcising your heart, letting go certain connections and relationships, or allowing the strong feelings to cause you to deny, distort, and reject the truth. So seven changes to balance the mind in closing. Think for yourself. I am not here to tell any of you what to think. You have your own God-given individuality, your own ability to reason and think, your own mind, and the Bible calls upon you to reason. This is one of God's design laws. We're going to go over several of them today. Here's one of them, the law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it because if you don't use it, you lose it. So if you are to become, as the Bible says, the mature those who've developed by practice the ability to discern right from wrong, Hebrews 5.14, if you're to become that mature person, you must exercise your reasoning abilities to weigh evidences, grapple with problems, see, uh, and come to conclusions, make choices. And as you do that and test those things, and then update as new information comes because we're finite, we're always updating, we're always growing. Your discerning and reasoning abilities grow. Think for yourself. Establish trust in God based on evidence. He is the God of creation. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.20, his divine nature is seen in what he has made. Look at the evidences God has provided in scripture, in real life experiences, in science, in nature. Form your beliefs. Belief, believe things that are true and evidence-based and reject some of these beliefs that have no basis in reality. There's tons of beliefs. wish I had time. I could do a whole lecture on crazy beliefs. Things people believe that are, you might call them superstitions, superstitious beliefs. You might think, well, Christianity doesn't have any superstitious beliefs. Oh, yes, there are many superstitious beliefs in Christianity that have no basis in reality. Uh, Find those, see what they are. Evaluate your feelings in light of evidence. Uh, we We don't take the position that you should ignore your feelings, suppress your feelings, or avoid your feelings. Feelings are important but they are to be elevated to your good judgment and understood for what they're trying to tell you and then you make a decision based on truth and evidence, not simply on the feeling. Control your imagination. Use your imagination, but guide it, direct it based on your good judgment. Establish healthy religious practices. Meditate on the God of love. We're gonna go through some of that science later. And then choose to do what's right, healthy, and reasonable. Right, healthy, reasonable, loving, because it actually is so. And you, it's a good little mantra. Is it right? That can be right or wrong as far as morally right or wrong. Is it reasonable? Is it healthy? And sometimes things are neither right or wrong. Like, oh, there's a pair of shoes. Should I buy those shoes or not? Well, there's nowhere it says right, morally right or wrong, but they're $3,000. That's not reasonable. Okay? So reasonableness comes in, but it may not be morally right or wrong. It's no sin, thou shalt not have those shoes. Or healthy. Maybe you've got uh, uh, low arches and you need shoes with high arches. That's not healthy for my feet. Those types of decision making really help you as you uh, evaluate life. Thank you very much.